Thank you for joining us for episode 367 of Live Happy Now. One thing that many people with mental illness have in common is that oftentimes their lives look perfectly fine from the outside. And that was certainly the case with this week's guest. I'm your host, Paula Phelps, and this week I'm joined by actor, writer, and mental health advocate Will Wheaton. Will was just 14 years old when he burst into the spotlight in the iconic coming-of-age movie Stand By Me in 1986. He went on to play many more roles, including starring as Wesley Crusher in Star Trek The Next Generation. But what he hid was a childhood filled with trauma and abuse that led to a lifetime of depression, anxiety, and complex PTSD. As an adult, Will has not only gotten the help he needed to discover positive mental health, but he openly shares his story to help support others on their journey. In this episode, he talks candidly about his new memoir, Still Just a Geek, explains the difficult decisions he has had to make for the sake of his mental health, and explains why he is so determined to help others. Will, welcome to Live Happy Now. Hi, thanks for having me. We're so honored that you would take the time to come on and talk to us. As I had mentioned to you, we've been talking about mental health all month long throughout the month of May, and your story is so compelling that it's the ideal way for us to wrap this all up. And you do have a powerful story. It's very raw. And in your new book, you know, you make us laugh. And I love your sarcasm and your snark and all your little comments, but you are also laying your emotions bare. And I guess to start, for those who haven't had the pleasure of discovering your book yet, it's a different setup. It's not your typical sit down and read book. Tell us a little bit about how it's set up. In 2004, I grabbed a whole bunch of posts I had written on my blog, which I had founded in 2000, and I put them all together into a narrative. I realized that for a couple of years, I had been on my blog telling this kind of real-time story about finding my relationship with Wesley Crusher, the character I played on Star Trek, my involvement with Star Trek, my identity at that time. That time in my life, I was, if I was thought of at all in the public, which I rarely was, I was thought of as somebody who kind of like used to be insert something. And that was really difficult for me. And I was just trying to figure out who I was and what I wanted. What I didn't know at the time, I didn't know a couple of things at the time. This book was originally published in 2004. I didn't know that I had mental illness. I didn't know that I had depression, anxiety, and PTSD because I didn't know I was untreated. And because I was untreated, I suffered and struggled mightily for an incredibly long time. Let's jump ahead now to two years ago. I was shopping a novel and one of the editors who read the manuscript said, this isn't right for a series of reasons, but I really enjoyed your 2004 memoir, Just a Geek. Would you be interested in revisiting it? And I said, why? And he said, well, you're a real different person now. You've grown a lot since then. I liked that book when it came out, but parts of it have not aged well. And I think you would benefit from addressing that. And I feel like there's a story here to be told about a person turning 50, looking back at who they were as they were turning 30. And I said, okay, I'll do that. What I didn't realize when I accepted the assignment was that I was going to 
really revisit some of the most consequential and traumatic moments of my childhood, some of the happiest and most memorable celebratory moments of my adult life being a husband and a father, and being able to tell those two halves of my life in a way that was, I guess it's interesting to people, getting really good feedback from folks on it. There is a story of survival in this book, a story of coping and atoning for some of the less positive ways I had to express myself to kind of survive and and get through what I was living with at that time. That's basically the first half of this book. It's me annotating the original memoir. And a good way to contextualize it is to imagine we're sitting down just like this. I'm reading my book, Just a Geek. And then from time to time, I look up from the book and say to you, all right, I want to talk about this a little bit. And those are the footnotes. Those are the annotations. And And it works so well. Did it What was it like looking back at yourself, like now through this lens, having discovered what you were struggling with, with mental illness and seeing it through a a different lens? It was complicated. There were times where I felt real embarrassed and frustrated and impatient with the younger version of myself. And that stayed with me through almost the entirety of the first draft. And When I got to the end of that first draft, I was like, why are you judging yourself so harshly, dude? Like, what's that about? And I actually kind of did a lot of therapy with that. I did a lot of inner child work and I did a lot of like really intense analysis. And when I went through it a second time and a third time, I started to find empathy and compassion for the person I was. I started to understand and see why I was hurting so much then. And why I lied to myself about things and why I went along with big lies that my parents told me and all of that. And hopefully this edition is like a, it's like a, it should feel like a real time conversation. And if I did it right, the reader will experience a transition from me feeling kind of irritated with my younger self to having compassion for my younger self, which is an enormous part of embracing and really loving the life that I have now. As an outsider, I think it's impossible to read it without feeling a tremendous amount of empathy and sympathy and compassion for everything that you went through and the fact that you had to work so hard to discover the way that it affected you and what you then had to overcome as a result of that. It's, it was really at points difficult to watch and be a spectator because you want to step in and help that child. A big part of my experience writing this was that exact emotion of, I spent a lot of this, I don't know, maybe it was the second or third rewrite, just enraged, absolutely furiously enraged at my parents for treating me the way they did. And as I understand it, that's just like a real normal, healthy part of the healing process, Mm -hmm. that there will be a moment that can last for as long as it needs to where we recognize how badly we were treated and how we were abused and how we were exploited. And then we get angry about it. Like, how could someone do that to that kid? How could someone do that to us? And then we get angry about it all over again. And I have had to work real hard to learn how to accept and kind of forget in a way that does not require forgiveness and condoning. I think that a real problem for me was this expectation from people a little bit older than me that for me to feel better, 
for me to get over this, for me to let the people who hurt me so much just out of my life to just discard them and not let them, that I had to somehow forgive and say, no, it's okay. It's not okay. And I don't forgive, but I'm not going to let it define my life and create that rage in me that I felt while I was doing all of this work. And being able to get through that and acknowledge like, you know, we have all of our emotions for a reason. They are primarily there to protect us. And that kind of anger is just like, all right, I don't need you anymore. Mm-hmm. I get it. I absolutely understand, but you're not helping me. You're just like the author, John Green, who's one of my just favorite human beings, talked about how when he was a young writer, rage and resentment were really good motivators. They were really good fuel to keep him working and keep him writing, right? There's the sense of like, I'll show you. And oh my God, that was a hundred percent driving me when I started for the longest time. And then there is a choice that we have to make. There's a point where we go, oh, wait a minute, this rage and resentment, it is a fuel that burns incredibly hot and produces an incredible amount of energy. But oh my God, the toxic waste it leaves behind is extremely damaging and it takes up a lot of space. And pretty soon it's the only thing. Hey, you got to make a choice, dude. Are you going to continue to use this as fuel or are you going to turn to something that's a little more like, I don't know, renewable and sustainable? (laughs) And I eventually had to make that choice and really let that go. And it was challenging. And I think it's really important. And just for full disclosure, you know, I feel 99% of the time these days, I feel like a really well-adjusted person. I feel happy and content. I feel safe. And every now and then something happens. Something triggers me. These have been unbelievably hard times for people who don't have mental illness. I feel like it's been extra challenging for all of us. I'm so glad I had this book to work on for the last like year and a half of all of this, because it gave me something to do that wasn't kind of sitting in that uncertainty and drowning in all of the things that all the traumas that the last several years have have resurfaced. And I think that's what happened to a lot of people. They didn't have things to work on. 2020 hit. We were locked down. People were left alone with their anxiety, the fear of what was happening already, the fear of what was to come. And that just kind of feeds upon itself and becomes bigger and bigger. How did you, in addition to working on the book, how were you handling the depression and anxiety and kind of where, I guess, where were you at on your journey with that when the pandemic hit? My wife and I were in Virginia when the CDC was like, all right, it's time to go home and stay there. And I remember both of us thinking, okay, we'll get a handle on this in like six or eight months. Like this is going to be, you know, it's going to suck, but it's not going to be, it's It's not not forever. It's not going to be four years. Well, we were wrong about that. And we made a decision really early on to establish a routine that we could rely on that would become normal that we could depend on. And that's little things, you know, and it's all of this. I want to be very clear. All of this is really supported by the incredible privilege that I have 
with my career and all of those things that being a white cisgender heterosexual male with the celebrity cheat enabled in 21st century America allows us. So I get that. I know that this is a lot harder for people who lived in a densely populated city, for people who worked on frontline. I get that. And I feel like it's almost offensive for someone like me who's just like, yeah, I just tried to get comfortable to talk about it. But the way that I stopped myself from falling into that Ouroboros of, you know, this is never going to get any better and I'm never going to let go of this tale was to look at all the times similarly catastrophic things have happened and that as a species, we've survived. And I believed that we would get through this as a people, right? Like it's not going to be forever. We're eventually going to be okay. And I just needed to survive all of that. And I worked really hard to make sure that I stayed connected to the people who uplift me and the people who I love. And my wife and I made lots of efforts to do in the early months of the pandemic, we would get together on Zoom and then we would get together like, you know, 20 feet away from our friends at the park or whatever. And we just kind of tried to keep our lives going. I'm really grateful that we don't have small children. My sister and her husband and my nephew had a really difficult time because of school and all of that. I guess, I mean, the shorter way to to answer your question is to say that I was very fortunate and privileged to have a, a wonderful support network. And all of the work that I did that led to me like ending contact with my parents had happened before the pandemic. I think if the pandemic had been an additional external pressure factor when I was needing to like, you know, figure that stuff out. I think it would have been really hard and maybe would have gotten in the way. And I'm grateful that it didn't. And let me ask you something about that relationship with your parents, because I have situations in my life where there are certain parts of my family I also had to disconnect from. Or I chose to, I didn't have to, Uh, but for my own sanity, I did. And a lot of people don't see that as an option. Yeah. And can you talk about that? Because people, I know people who are struggling with that. And can you talk about how beneficial it is for your mental health when you know that person is a trigger, when it is a a landmine for you? Talk about that experience, please. I want to make sure that everyone knows and really hears this, whoever you are listening to this. Whatever choice you make, it's super valid and it's your choice and no one gets to tell you if it's right or wrong. You have to make the best choice for yourself. You don't owe anybody anything and you deserve to be happy. You deserve to follow your dream. You deserve to be fulfilled and unconditionally loved. And if those circumstances don't exist in your life because you are like trauma bonded to someone who is preventing that from happening, I really support you making changes that you need to make to have your very best, fullest life. I recently saw a saying online, normalize not having an opinion about other people's relationships with their families. I I think that's real important because there are people kind of one step removed from my circle who have very strong opinions that are quite frankly, none of their business about people have choosing or choosing to have or not have relationships with their parents. Here's my thinking on all of this. If the people who are your parents 
are so cruel and toxic and hurtful that you're even contemplating having no parents instead of those parents, knowing how painful that is and knowing what that absence feels like. If someone has reached a point in their life where they need to make that choice, I fully support that person. And I understand how hard it is. And I know that it's not a choice you make recklessly. I know it's not a choice you make to like lash out at whoever it is you're disconnecting from. It's a choice you're making to care for yourself and to put your time and energy into you, into what makes you happy. A stunt performer talked about having a dollar of attention to spend on a stunt, right? So you're doing a motorcycle stunt. Ethan Peck from Star Trek Strange New Worlds described this to me just recently in a Ready Room interview. He said he was talking to a stunt performer and he was going to do a motorcycle stunt. The stunt performer said, listen, you know, you have a dollar of attention to spend. If you're spending 90 cents of your dollar on not falling off the motorcycle, the stunt's not going to look very good. So you need to be good enough at motorcycle riding that you can spend like five cents on staying on the motorcycle and the rest of your money goes into your performance and it goes into the experience of it. I find that's a really useful way to think of just about everything we use a dollar because it's just an easy unit to divide. You can choose whatever number you want. I feel like, you know, we have a dollar to spend on relationships and that includes our relationship with ourself. If we're dumping 99 cents of every dollar into taking care of somebody else's feelings, what does that leave for us? What does that leave for the people who we're trying to have in our lives who don't suck the life out of us and drain our energy and our joy. Like what's left? We got to do what's best for ourselves and we're worth it and we deserve it. And I have stopped being polite with people when they express strong opinions about it and tell me that I'm doing something wrong. I feel like it's extremely out of line and inappropriate for anybody to say anything at all. And the more we normalize not having an opinion about someone's relationship with their family. And the more we normalize support for someone who has made obviously an incredibly difficult, very painful decision. Like every day I'm glad those awful, abusive, gaslighting people are not in my life. And at the same time, I miss my parents. Yeah, I think that's what's important to note. People don't take this lightly. They don't make this decision on a whim. It's something that's very, it's it's painful. It takes a lot of contemplation. And for a while afterwards, you're still kind of saying, did I do the right thing? Is that the right thing? Yeah, and you have those days where like, sometimes my brain's like, hey, remember this one time dad was nice to you? And I'm like, I do. I remember the one time. I know I think about the one time every now and then. Do you have another time that you want to throw at me, brain? Because if there's literally a second time, uh, maybe I'll revisit this. And then my brain's like, oh, right, I forgot about that. And like, it's just, you know, that's just a thing that happens. There's stages of grief associated with this too. I went through anger and bargaining and denial. I went through all of it. And it's been a long process. And I mean, look, I have a book out all about this. I have a best-selling book out all about this that goes into this in great detail. And even still, I have days where I struggle. And that is just a reality of my life. And I share that because it can look 
like, well, he worked it all out. Everything's great. Happy ending. He's going to stand in front of the Rebel Alliance and get a medal from Princess Leia. Hooray. And that's just not how it is. It's more like the ending of Empire Strikes Back. Like, Well, there goes that spaceship out into nothing. I hope everything works out. <laughs> well, you have, you know, you've become such a great warrior for mental health and have been so open with sharing your own experiences with, with anxiety, with depression, with PTSD. And I don't think there's ever been a better time for this because the, the crisis is so great in America. Yeah. And you're letting people know it's okay to live with these conditions, not feel ashamed with it, take the actions they need to take care of themselves. What do you hope, like if you can look down the road and say, this is the result of all this work that I've put in, all the sacrifices I've made, what does that look like? I dream of a future where nobody wants to talk to me about mental health because talking about mental health is so normal and unremarkable. There's just, it would be silly. It would be like getting someone, no one's going to sit down and talk to me about how I exercise. <laughs> it just doesn't matter. And I hope that there is a day in our future where we are compassionate and kind and supportive as a society to all of our brethren who live with mental illness. And as a result of that compassion and empathy, it is not remarkable for it to be discussed in any way. That's a world I want to live in. Yeah, me too. I want to be there with you. Will, I appreciate your generosity with your time, the insight that you give us. Uh, we're going to tell everyone how they can pick up your book, read more about it. Um, you've that. also, there's a couple of great YouTube videos of interviews with you that really give more insight. And I think we'll give links to those so people can discover more about this journey that you've been on, what you've yeah. been through and how they can kind of, they can learn from you. Uh, thanks. I appreciate that very much. That was actor, author, and mental health advocate, Will Wheaton, talking about his mental health journey and his mission to help others. If you'd like to follow Will on social media, listen to additional interviews with him, or find out more about his memoir, Still Just a Geek, visit our website at livehappy.com and click on the podcast tab. That is all we have time for today. We'll meet you back here again next week for an all-new episode. And until then, this is Paula Phelps reminding you to make every day a happy one.